Welcome, and thank you for tuning into the Monroe College True Crime Blind Justice Podcast. The crisis of crime and mental health in our communities impacts all of us. Hear from experts on the front lines in law enforcement, law, and human services about the criminal justice and human response to crime, substance abuse, and mental illness. Welcome, and thank you for joining us for the launch of our Monroe College True Crime Blind Justice podcast series. My name is Galen Harrison. I'm the Dean of the School of Criminal and Social Justice at Monroe College, and I will moderate the panel discussion. Today's episode is on U.S. mass shootings, what you need to know about gun violence and the law enforcement response. I am delighted to introduce our two guest panelists who will share their expertise and thoughts with you about mass shootings and active shooters. Dr. Andrew Costello is a professor at Monroe College since 2021. He received his doctorate in criminal justice from John Jay College of Criminal Justice through the Graduate Center of the City of New York. He also received a master's degree in criminal justice from Rockefeller College located at the State University at Albany and a Bachelor of Engineering degree in Mechanical Engineering from Manhattan College. He was also a professor at the New York Institute of Technology, John Jay College, and Brooklyn College. Dr. Costello is a 26-year veteran of the New York City Police Department, where he worked in patrol, transit, and detective bureaus. While working at the detective bureau, Dr. Costello revised the case management system from an antiquated paper system with poor business rules to the modern enterprise case management system of today. Dr. Costello worked as an executive officer of the Central Investigation and Resource Division responsible for coordination and management of all investigations of the 3,500 investigators within the Detective Bureau and simultaneously was the commanding officer of counterterrorism and training unit responsible for entry-level training of all investigators within the NYPD and continuing professional training for all investigators within the Detective Bureau. Dr. Costello was personally responsible for the official reporting of murder statistics that ultimately ended up in the Uniform Crime Report. We also have with us Professor Keith Singer. Keith joined the New York City Police Department in 1993 and realized early on that the NYPD was changing its strategy for combating crime. He knew that innovation and novel ideas to solve problems would be crucial in forming the new mission for the NYPD. A graduate of St. John's University with a master's degree in criminal justice leadership, Keith was promoted to the rank of sergeant. Keith perfected his skills as an accomplished leader, trainer, communicator, and troubleshooter. Keith was later promoted to lieutenant and was assigned commanding officer of the Transit Bureau operations. Keith was a search and rescue sergeant at Ground Zero following the 9-11 terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center and he helped lead the NYPD Transit Bureau through the Hurricane Sandy natural disaster with tactical planning, development, and implementation of crisis management strategies. After retiring from the NYPD, Keith went on to the field of education. He has been a criminal justice professor at Monroe College in New York since 2005 and has been a guest speaker for many symposiums, including a symposium of collaboration between Monroe College and the NYPD to develop new ideas for situations involving an active shooter. Keith wants to give back to others. After being so blessed in his own life, he has an enthusiasm to help others through teaching, 
Keith is dedicated and committed to helping others and works exhaustively to facilitate the knowledge and skills needed for his students to make a real difference in the world. Now, as a regular person living in these times and hearing about gun violence and mass shootings, especially in places where we're supposed to feel safe, like our schools, houses of worship, malls, maybe a dance studio, nightclubs, supermarkets, it's frightening what we're hearing related to gun violence. So I will start with Dr. Costello. Dr. Costello, can you please help us to first understand the definition of mass shootings? Please define the term mass shootings. Uh, Well, that's a loaded question. Pardon the expression for the topic here. Different places have different definitions. So the mass shooting as defined by the FBI, it's one or more individuals actively engaged in killing or attempting to kill people in a populated area. Although it's not specifically mentioned, it's implicit in this definition that, that a firearm is going to be used because they use the term shooter. So you got a lot of things. So what does it include that FBI definition? Well, that, uh, shooting must be in a public place. Uh, it also includes shootings that are occurring at more than one location. They're also going to shoot where it uh, include where shooters' actions were not the result of another criminal act. The shootings must result in a mass killing. Uh, the shootings also indicate an apparent spontaneity by the shooter. And you want the shootings where the observer sh- appeared to methodically search for potential victims and potential victims that are weak or unprotected. And also the shooting appears focused on the injury of people, not buildings or objects. That's the FBI definition. Now, the FBI has a lot of caveats and cutouts. So if the shooting uh, is a mass shooting but involves self-defense, it does not count. If it involves gang violence of any type, no matter how many people are killed, it will not count as a mass shooting. Uh, if it involves drug violence, uh, similar to gang violence, it will not be included. If it contains residential or domestic disputes, okay, so domestic disputes are pretty open and forward. Residential, I thought was interesting, could also define people, let's say you're fighting over a fence line. I have no idea how many of these things even came up to be a controversial issue, but those are also excluded. Anything that has a barricade or a hostage situation that's controlled is not included. If there's crossfire as the byproduct of, an on, of another ongoing criminal act, so if you have one, two gangs facing each other and they both shoot at each other, one person drops on one side, three people drop on the other side, this will not be included as a mass shooting under FBI, right? Uh, and it's, if the action appears to not have put other people in peril, this will not uh, be included uh, in the FBI definition. Right, so we got a lot of stuff there. That's the FBI definition. Another common definition that is used is done by the Department of Homeland Security. And they define really this as an active shooter. So you hear the term active shooter as a Department of Homeland Security term. It's an individual actively engaged in killing or attempting to kill people in a confined or populated area. So it's got an involved firearm. It has to appear to have struck random strangers or bystanders and not only specific targets and not only occurred solely in a domestic setting or have been primarily gang-related, drive-by shooting, hostage-taking incidents, or robberies. So the definitions are similar. They are similar. Now, I just want to state here, you notice between the, uh, the FBI and the DHS, you don't have anything about a number of bodies being killed here. All right, just so you have that there. Okay, so that's some of the confusion on these definitions. Now, colloquial, the FBI has another situation. Okay. <laughs> where they initially defined four or more bodies going into a category of a mass incident, and now it's been redefined to three or more bodies recently. This seemed to change in 2013. Don't know exactly the reason why. So that's pretty much the definition of a mass shooting based on these two entities. 
advocate groups, whether it's Mother Jones, uh, the Violence Project, uh, their definition pretty much typically seems to be four or more people injured by gunshot injuries. Then from there, the definitions vary. I like to think we can get a, an easier definition of, of what people typically consider a mass shooting to be. And I, here's what I would suggest. Uh, as you can see from the FBI, Department of Homeland Security, they've eliminated anything that's instrumental. What I mean by that is if it's the furtherance of a crime, furtherance of something like I'm robbing a bank and I shoot somebody and I shoot like eight people, for some reason that's not deemed to be a mass shooting. So there seems to be uh, a need for more of an expressive crime than a instrumental crime. And that's actually not, not a bad breaking definition. I'm okay with that. Uh, the next question is with the expressive crimes, there are a lot of crimes that are expressive. Domestic violence, but yeah, I think we'd all agree, there's a lot of expressive crimes there, right? And there are a lot of domestic incidents where you could have three or four people killed all within the same family. That's why you see that carve out for domestic violence. So and I'm, I'm thinking that's okay. Cause if, I think when most people think of a mass shooting, they're thinking of something that's happening in a shopping mall or a public area where the person is indiscriminately shooting at people who he doesn't necessarily intimately know that directly for some grievance of some type that is expressed. They also don't want to exclude the shopping malls. They also want to include it to schools, public parks, but basically areas where that either public or the private have a lot of direct access to the facility or the area or the land. Dr. Costello, I have a question for you. This is so fascinating. You know, I'm just trying to get a better idea with respect to domestic incidents. Is it possible that there could be a domestic incident and, you know, someone that's involved, the perpetrator, then goes out and commits additional killings, let's say four or more people, would that then be classified as a mass shooting, even though it may have stemmed from a domestic incident? That is a very interesting question. There are too many of those circumstances, but I can easily see a situation where a person decides to kill their family, know they're going to go, want to go out in a blaze of glory, want to be quote, shot by the police, so to say. Uh, so go to a shopping mall and I guess start shooting at a shopping mall with the intent of having a police response. So I'd say the incident at the shopping mall would count as the mass shooting. The incident within the household would be isolated to the uh, domestic violence situation. Now, and it's just kind of really weird. Now we have something that initially started off as expressive. And in my view, it was instrumental. And now I've done this, now I need to find a way of getting myself killed. So I've just conflicted my own definition based off the statement you provided. Yeah, I would love for you to talk about some of the myths associated with the profile of a mass shooter and definitely some prevalence and, and frequency, some statistics that you may have. Okay, so depending on which sources you go, I've had some fairly heavy body counts since the 80s, uh, but the incidents overall vary between 15 to 25 a year. All right, so um, is that an increase? Well, any death is too many. Any incident is too many. But it's really pretty much been stable for quite some time. We had a little bit of a peak in 2017, but not really out of the norm. In 2017, there were uh, 29 incidents. Since the 80s, it's pretty much fluctuated between 15 to 25 incidents a year for some lulls and highs. Now, some of the body counts have gone up, but they can be really accounted for basically in 2017. 
right? Okay, where it's one particular year, there were more, uh, about 600 injuries and 34 deaths in one particular year. Still a problem, but is it going up precipitously? No. Is it still too high? Yes. A lot of people don't realize a lot of these mass shootings do happen in private homes. Okay, I know we were thinking of schools, malls, or bars, but there, a lot of these do occur in, uh, in, in homes, uh, you know, in private and public areas of the homes. So I, I guess a lot of people probably aren't aware of that. Uh, we have this term of the shooters. Uh, a lot of these shooters will possess firearms where they, in theory, are prohibited from owning the firearm. Okay, what do I mean by prohibited from owning the firearm? Uh, they had a felony conviction. They were adjudicated as being mentally ill by a court of law, which I've got to get back to, okay, or had a domestic violence restraining order. All right, so let's go backwards. Domestic violence restraining order, uh, otherwise, you know, an order of protection can be issued by a criminal court or a family court. It is uh, adjudicated in front of a judge with a due process hearing with no issues there. Now, being adjudicated mentally ill, I must be very specific on this, means you are actually committed by a court. There's a lot of people with mental illnesses out there, but we're talking about people who are yet to be actually committed by a mental health court. And I think it's a bit of a confusion with a lot of uh, people on this. So that's why I wanted to make sure that gets clarified. Being convicted of a felony conviction is another uh, prohibition. Uh, there are a few more in there. Certain misdemeanors that fall underneath domestic violence will also disqualify you for firearm possession, which pretty much, they are penal law misdemeanors. They're going to be uh, assault, aggravated harassment. Menacing is not in there in the New York State, uh, but aggravated harassment and some assault charges. So in some situations, this did occur. The principal had, had the possession of these weapons, right? Uh, now you're saying how many? It's really one third, one in three. Okay, now as for people displaying warning signs, that's why I wanted to clarify the mental health, right? We hear that people display warning signs and that's true. Suicidal ideation, saying that they're going to commit this, they're going to threats of violence against themselves or others or other family members, violating order protections, engaging in other violent acts. This is occurring. And this, uh, in theory, it happens in 56% of the mass shootings that are analyzed. But I must stress to you that this stuff is being done after the fact. I have no idea of anything that everybody knew proactively that's occurring. I think everybody understands what I mean by that. It's very easy for me to say you had a disturbed childhood after you're done. Yet um, a lot of people have disturbed childhoods. So I don't know how you would limit it going forward. But there are some signs there. Some of them would say a little more explicit. When you're writing on social media saying you're going to do this and you're saying a specific action doing, I'll admit that's explicit. But some of it, it said, well, he was bipolar. I don't necessarily know if that counts after the fact. A lot of people bipolar, bipolar this way. Not a lot, but a, a fairly good percentage. So that's where it gets a little bit confusing on the uh, on the signs. So, Dr. Costello, what can family members do or what can friends do or what can neighbors do or what can colleagues do? There are what I call, they're called red flag laws. They're called restriction orders in some states, not all states. So basically, if a family member thinks that a person might do something crazy with firearms, they can petition the court directly, this can be done directly to the court, but typically it's done through the police agency. And the police agency can also do it. Uh, uh, they can get a temporary order, which will be adjudicated in front of a judge to explain the reasoning of why the uh, order is done. As for the frequency of it being done, 
in New York State, there has not been that many restraining orders coming forward. All right. So is it being widely practiced? No. Uh, that's one state. I'm not familiar with other states. I was looking at a figure earlier for this year. There might have been 30 done within the city of New York since the law went into effect. I city of New York's population for people who are not here. I'm going to say 9 million. Is that fair? Might be 8.3. That's good. About 9 million is. Might be 8.3. I, I wasn't track. It goes back and forth. But the point is 8 or 9 million. 30 is a very small number if that's the situation. Now, it might be fulfilling in the city of New York because there's a lot, there's restrictions on firearms. So that might be the other factor. But the counties outside of the state of New York, with the exception of two counties, you're not really seeing a frequency of this restraining order being used. All right, so I don't know what it'd be for other states, but I'm sure it'd be a similar pattern. You know, Dr. Costello, you know, when you, you're discussing some of the figures with us, it seems to me that from what we hear, you know, on the radio and the news, that the amount, the incidents are much greater than the 15 to 25 a year, right? But, you know, based on on the figures that you've shared and your research, it is within the confines of these numbers. Why is there this sense of, you know, fear and trepidation and anxiety if the numbers have remained pretty much stable with respect to the amount of mass shootings? Well, I think a lot of it is we have social media. Everybody has a, has a cell phone. They can all person record an incident. You get several different recordings for the same incident in one particular area. And let's face it, some of these um, mass murderers, what do you call murders? They're doing um, live simulcast on their social media accounts while they're doing it. Some are streaming it to three different social media accounts before it's uh, even being discovered. So it's definitely getting out there. I guess, for example, let, let's go back in time. Does, that, does everybody remember the Columbine incident in the 90s? Yes, absolutely. Think how differently that would be perceived now. Because that got a lot of media because they had enough camera, security cameras in the school, which only had four different angles. That made a fairly big impact. So, and you also had the 9-11 calls. Now think of, I don't even know the size of a high school, but it seems pretty big. There must be more than a couple hundred students there. Right? Assuming... All 100 at a high school, every student has a cell phone, which I don't think is a big stretch. You can find me and say it's 98%. You get my point. It's, it's, it's effectively everybody, including the teachers, right? Imagine if Columbine happened now. How much filming would you see? And you know the, the trench called Mafia, if they had the ability to do it, would have been simulcasting with GoPro cameras. I really do believe that. I feel like, clearly, I can't prove that. But, you know, but it wouldn't surprise me that if they had the ability, they would. They wanted to show that they were killing a lot of people and moving on. Now, like I said, 2017 was a really bad year for deaths, incidents, deaths, and, uh, and injuries. Well, first of all, I also think that society in general is not as tolerant to these deaths as they used to be. Uh, I guess we're evolving to you know, have a little more concern about, I'm going to try to use the word avoidable deaths. I think that's the right term indiscriminate avoidable deaths. I think a lot of this, you can't actually see it. Now take a look at Sandy Hook. How much video do we have of that? Younger kids, right? Yeah, but the elementary school kids do not have this, usually don't have the cell phones. Yeah, so there, there wasn't a lot of video of the Sandy Hook incident. Right, it wasn't. Um, and if it was video, it was the teachers, right? Yes. Or the adults, I should say. But uh, I don't know anybody who saw third graders' cell phone video. Yeah, and that's no. probably the difference. 
And I think it looks when you're seeing it, how it actually happens in person, it uh, has a bigger impact. You know, it's a lot more dramatic when you're seeing a first-person view of a, you know someone coming in and you're hearing the, the shots or the rounds in the background as you're coming through. That's the best explanation I can give for you. It's uh, but it's not based on the frequency increase. Thank you. Well, listen, it's certainly comprehensive. It's sobering. It's enlightening. And, um, you know, we really thank you, Dr. Costello, for taking the time to share your expertise. You're still on with us, but I did want to turn it over to Professor Keith Singer. Um, Professor Singer, what are your thoughts on the law enforcement response to some of the most recent mass shootings? Okay, so thank you, Dean Harrison. Thank you, Dr. Costello, for being here and being on such an important panel regarding active shooters. So today I'm going to be discussing protocols that should be used when confronted with an active shooter situation. I understand these ideas are not exclusively different from what others have said before, because there has been conversation regarding mass shooting before, but I believe it will bring some clarity when challenged with the active shooter situation by giving a very simplistic acronym that people can understand and remember and and act quickly on. And, And the acronym is ACTIVE. That's the acronym, ACTIVE. So the A stands for assess, the C stands for calm, the T stands for time, the I stands for implement, the V stands for vision, and lastly, the E and that ACTIVE stands to equalize. So let's look at assessment. So when you're looking at assessment, it seems you know simple, but it's not as simple as one might think, okay? According to the FBI, when any type of workplace violence happens, or occurs, people are initially startled and they're fearful, right? So a couple of things that people should do, they should be aware of the environment and any possible dangers, take note of nearest exits in the facility that you're visiting or in your workplace. If you're in an office, stay there and secure the door. If you are in a hallway, get into a room and secure the door. And as a last resort, and and I really can't stress this enough, as a last resort, if you are confronted with the active shooter, then you're going to have to make a choice to take the active shooter down. But again, that's the last resort, and I'll discuss some of that a little bit later. In assessing the situation needs, it's got to be done quickly. Active shooter situations are often over within 10 to 15 minutes before law enforcement arrives on the scene. So individuals must both be prepared mentally and physically to deal with an active shooter situation. So once one determines that these bangs that you're hearing are not fireworks or they're not construction being done inside the facility or outside of the facility, and the sounds that you're actually hearing are gunfire, you have to act. So some actions a person might want to take is to uh, maybe initiate muted specific internal security warnings, such as a silent alarm. Do not create panic. Evacuate as long as it can be done safely. Leave your belongings behind, your pocketbook behind, your jacket behind. Your life is more important than your possessions, okay? If evacuation to a safe location is not possible, then you're going to have to decide to shelter in place, block windows, Place signs on the exterior of windows, okay, to show possible EMS or police officers where people are or possibly where people are injured 
And when I'm talking about signs outside of the windows, meaning the room that you're in, you could put a sign occupied by people, people injured in this room. So the police could see those signs from the outside and see where injured people are or where possible victims might be. Remain silent, whisper communication, or use visual signals. And lastly, do not respond to any voice commands until you can verify for certain that's either a police officer, a security officer, or somebody that's there to help you, okay? But there's a couple of things you need to know about the active shooter themselves when you're assessing the situation. So active shooters are likely to engage more than one target, right? They might target particular individuals, or they might just intend to kill as many randomly chosen people as possible. Active shooters often go to locations with high concentrations of people, like uh, Dr. Costello said, uh, could be a school, could be theaters, could be shopping centers or other places of business. Active shooter's intention, all right, it's usually, and again, Dr. Costello brought up the point, their intention is usually an expression of hatred or rage. So it is an expressive crime. It's not financial or other motives that other crimes might have within them. So thus, with the police, and when we're talking tactics, that was the question that you asked, the police cannot treat this situation, an active shooter situation, as containment and negotiation, because this is not a hostage negotiation situation. It is completely different. So thereby, the police need to act quickly respond inside or where the threat is and then take the threat down. They need to eliminate the threat. Now, in Uvalde, they treated it as a hostage situation, and it, and it shouldn't have been treated as a hostage situation. It should have been treated as an active shooter situation. We saw what happened there, and we saw how many innocent victims' lives were caused because of their action as treating it as a hostage situation, which it wasn't. But then you look at Nashville, they treated it as an active shooter and they rightly quickly went in there and then they took care and eliminated the threat. Also, active shooters often have made detailed plans for their attack. You have to remember that often they are better armed than the police. They usually have some familiarity with the chosen location. In some cases, they have planned diversions or booby traps such as explosive devices in some situation, active shooters choose a location for tactical advantages, such as high protected locations, while in other instances, active shooters, they'll remain mobile. So then we get to the calm part. When confronted with an active shooter situation, a person's mindset is going to go from rational to irrational very quickly, right? I mean, you could see how that could happen. So because of this surreal nature, of the incident, and because things are going to go from zero to 100 in a matter of seconds, you need to remain calm in order to make the best possible decisions. Now, just, just, just ponder this. This is something that I found during my research, and this is incredible. So let's just say if 100 of us were put in a life-threatening situation, statistically, only 15% of us would be able to make the right decision. 15%. That, that's really scary. That's frightening. <laughs> yeah, but, but, now, but it, even gets, it even gets scary because think about this. So most of us would fail in the face of adversity. So here are the numbers. 
75% of us would be so bewildered, right, that this is even actually happening, that we, we would become mentally paralyzed. 10% of us would become actively dangerous because we would freak out and we'd freak out other people and that would lessen their chances of survival as well. Only 15 of us would be able to remain calm and rational enough to make decisions to save our lives and possibly the lives of other people as well. However, there are things people can do to control out of control situations, all right, and in remaining calm. So the first step in remaining calm and rational is to assert your control over the situation, even if it's something insignificant to the overall situation. So what do I mean by that? Although it's hard to control a lot during an active shooter situation, obviously you're not in control of the situation. It's going to be the active shooter. However, research has found that there is one thing you can control in any situation, and that's your breathing. NASA did some research, okay, and I think we would all agree on this panel that to be an astronaut is a very stressful job. So what they did was they did research, and what their study showed was that if they could effectively control the astronaut's breathing, then they could effectively control the astronaut's state of mind. So therefore, if their breathing is calm and they're not getting panicked, their state of mind will be calmer and not as panicked, and that should be able to make a person make better decisions. Now, further research was also done through the Veteran Affairs Center in San Diego. So their trial showed that Navy SEALs, special op forces, and men with similar training reacted in a unique and unnatural way. An unnatural way. What was that unnatural way? Well, when they were put in these stressful situations, the men and women that were put into these situations, their pulses slowed down, believe it or not, in a stressful situation. So, you know, how did their pulses slow down? Well, by examining brain scans and research data of these men and women, the study showed that these men and women were consciously calming themselves down when the stress came on. They realized, hey, I'm in a stressful situation. I need to take control of my faculties. And through an exercise of will, they were able to positively prepare themselves. So this goes back also to Air Force research that was done. And in Air Force research, what they said was to understand that stress affects you, then you can understand how to control it and then set things up to be prepared. So controlling something, even if it's just your breathing during that particular situation, it's good. Often an active shooter is going to be over within 10 to 15 minutes. This does not give a person much time to think and come up with a well-thought plan of action. I understand that. However, there is something called the time dilation illusion. It's called the time dilation illusion. And what is this? Well, where time seems to slow down during a stressful and or not pleasant situation. So it seems like time slows down. So for instance, According to Einstein, when a man is sitting with a pretty girl, right, for an hour, okay, it seems like a minute. I like that. <laughs> it seems like a minute to that person. However, if you put that same person on a hot stove for a minute, it's going to seem more than an hour. So this is something we've all experienced before, right? Time flies when we're enjoying ourselves. 
but it seems to drag on when we're doing something monotonous or something that we don't want to be doing. So in such a situation, an illusion of time dilation could facilitate an effect of escape. People often report that time seems to slow down during dangerous events, such as car accidents or or robberies or, or, or things of that nature. So if if time seems to slow down for you during the stressful event and you are controlling your emotions by possibly, like I was saying before, controlling your breathing, you might make better choices and have a better chance at survival. And that brings us to implementation. So after assessing the situation and remaining calm and figuring out how much time we might have to take specific action, it is now time to implement a plan of action. Now, implementing a course of action will be difficult, especially if panic sets in. I get it, okay? And a lot of this is going to be practice and drills and things of that nature. However, this does not mean a plan of some sort should not be implemented. According to the mechanic group, who are security insurance specialists, the following actions should be taken during an active shooter situation. So one, if possible, assist others to escape. Follow police officer or security personnel instructions. Attempt to safely and quickly move to the nearest or designated exits. Keep noise and talking to a minimum. Do not activate a fire alarm. This may expose others that could be attacked as they evacuate. So please do not do that. Call 911 or contact designated authorities by established and or alternative means. Low profile, get out of sight. Use available cover from small firearms if it's available. Keep everyone calm, out of sight and quiet. Turn off lights and close blinds. Turn off radios, TVs and computer monitors. Put mobile devices on vibrate. Silence wristwatch alarms. Avoid bunching up and creating an easy target for the active shooter. So what, what do I mean by that? So we're all professors. So say we're in a classroom and unfortunately we have an active shooter in our building. Instead of getting everybody into the corner to try to hide, that's not a good idea. Because if the active shooter comes inside that room now, it's an easier target to kill everybody all at once. Spread. So therefore, if the active shooter does come in, and if they hone in on a particular person or people, maybe as they're honing in on that particular person or, or, or people, another person that they don't see can try to attack the active shooter and then eliminate the threat that way. Remain calm and quiet. Develop a contingency plan in the event the active shooter confronts you. If you cannot speak, this is important too. If you cannot speak, leave the telephone line open so authorities can monitor activities in your location. Just leave it open so they can hear what's happening inside the location. If you are in a hallway, stay out of the hallway center while moving, but do not hug the walls, all right? People in law enforcement know that bullets tend to follow the path of a wall inside of a building. So therefore, if you're hugging onto that wall, okay, and the active shooter is actually shooting, we do not want a bullet to ricochet and hit the actual person. Move to the nearest room, lock and barricade the door. Experience has shown that active shooters will continue to kill unless physically stopped. So be prepared to take any action to survive. If you have a firearm and are trained in its use, be prepared to use it, but 
Let the active shooter come to you. You are not a trained law enforcement personnel person, okay? Do not move from your position. If you do have something like that, stay in place. If the active shooter then comes to you, then you could take care of the situation. If you are not firearm trained or you do not have a firearm, uh, you could use any object that can be employed as an improvised weapon, uh, a broom handle, a stapler, or something like that. Be as aggressive as possible. Yell and throw items at the active shooter if that active shooter confronts you. Multiple attackers can be more effective. Be fully committed to your attack. The best time to attack may be when the active shooter has paused to reload the firearm. The typical active shooter does not expect violent resistance. So you could get them by surprise because they're not expecting it. Uh, employ surprise and attack at first opportunity. Be aggressive and use improvised weapons at hand to overcome the active shooter. If possible, remain in place until police contact you. If not possible, because of fire or an explosive device, move quickly and quietly to the nearest exit. Consider windows. I mean, if you're on the first floor, jump out the window. Second floor, jump out the window. I would even say third floor. Jump out the window. So you can consider windows for escape. If an active shooter is incapacitated, immediately separate him or her from the weapon and place it in a safe area. Advise the authorities of the situation and await their arrival. Place the weapon in plain view away from the active shooter. Do not carry or handle that weapon until police arrive. Okay. And that brings us to vision. And that's one thing that you don't hear a lot when it comes to active shooting vision. Our vision during the incident. Vision is something that is not always talked about when dealing with situations of high stress. However, vision is very important and can be analyzed in two ways. So that first type of vision is a vision like quarterbacks might experience when they're having the game of their lives. They're in the zone, right? Have you ever been in the zone when a person is in the zone Sometimes they see things around them very clearly and very crisply and make better decisions when in such a state. The second type of vision, however, uh, which can get somebody killed during an active shooter incident, and this is always talked about in police circles and police training, is tunnel vision. So what is tunnel vision? Tunnel vision is the tendency to focus exclusively on a single or limited goal or point of view. But the problem with this type of vision is that you do not see everything going on around you, okay? As your focus narrows, you start to miss things, right? Those missed things are like lost puzzle pieces, leaving holes in your understanding of what's happening. Thus, situational awareness at that particular point, if you have tunnel vision, it's going to be flawed. When finding yourself intensely focused on visual stimuli or audible stimuli, it could be an alarm or something like that or a task, force yourself to back away, if only momentarily, and take in the broader surroundings of your area. And lastly, equalizing. So for the purpose of this discussion, equalize will mean balancing and adjusting the stress back to normal levels. So in order to equalize the situation back to normal levels, police need as much information as possible when applying a tactical plan. If a person is able to call 911, 
You should be prepared to alert the dispatcher of the location of the shooter, okay? That's if it's known. The number of shooters, a physical description of the shooter or shooters, the number and types of weapons the shooter has in his or her possession, and the number of potential victims at the location. If you are unsure about any of that information, let the dispatcher know that you're not sure. Do not assume, do not make things up, okay? It's going to be a difficult time for the police anyway, because a lot of times they go in blind, so they don't need information that's not necessarily there. Furthermore, once you have reached a safe location or an assembly point, you're likely going to be held in that area by law enforcement until the situation is under control and all witnesses have identified and have been questioned. So do not leave until law enforcement authorities have instructed you to do so. And lastly, and, and this, is, this is the most important aspect of this whole conversation, uh, if you are confronted by the police, understand that they do not know who the active shooter is or who the civilian victim is, okay? So remain calm and follow their instructions. If you are holding anything in your hands, put it down immediately so it's not mistaken as a weapon. Raise your hands, spread your fingers to show law enforcement that you do not have anything hidden in your hands and try to keep your hands visible at all times. Any quick or erratic movements should be avoided such as attempting to hold on to officers. I know people are going to be very energized. They're going to be very emotional, but you can't just hold on to officers. You have to remember, they're trying to get in to try to take the threat out, okay? Avoid screaming or yelling because it only elevates the uh, tension of the situation. You may be in fear and or traumatized. Everybody gets that. It is a fearful and traumatizing experience. However, the officer's primary goal is to stop the shooter as quickly as possible. So do not stop the officers to ask for help unless it's absolutely necessary and unless it's an absolute emergency. Wow. So Dr. Costello and Professor Singer, you have really, really informed us not just about mass shootings, the definition, the history but how we can use this knowledge to prepare and to empower ourselves if we ever find ourselves, hopefully never, right, in a mass shooting or an active shooting situation. So I just wanted to know if we have any final and last words from Dr. Costello and Professor Singer before we end this amazing podcast. Dr. Costello? I just want to finish up on a key singer statements there about um, at some point you may have to decide as you're an innocent that you're going to have to fight. And um, I'll leave you with a sobering comment. It's, it is better to die as a lion than to be slaughtered like a lamb. Agreed. Thank you, Dr. Costello. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Professor Singer, last words. Yeah, just uh, the best advice I could give is that institutions, organizations have a contingency plan and they work that contingency plan like they would work a fire drill. You know, we have fire drills all the times in schools. There should be drills of active shooters, what to do, where to go, and how to place yourself. It's really important, right? Training and practice, yep. right, yep. leads to to better outcomes. 
Fantastic. Gentlemen, thank you for sharing your time, your expertise, your knowledge, your passion with us. We've all heard it. We appreciate your common sense advice on helping to hopefully keep us safe if we're ever faced um, with the situation. To our listeners, we truly hope you enjoyed this episode. I know that I did on mass shootings, and we encourage you to tune in to our next episode on femicide. Thank you, everyone. Thank you very much. Have a lovely day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. For more information on future episodes, you can follow along at Facebook at Monroe College, Instagram at Monroe College, Twitter at Monroe College. Have a great week.